Good evening. I hope you'll excuse me if I appear a trifle excited, but I've just come into possession of a cure for insomnia. to the Good Trash Genre Cast, where we gather around a table and we talk about the movies that you will never see in a film studies course, although this month we're doing anti-trash, so you might see them in a film studies course in about 15-20 years. And so we're trying to be very, very, very recent and looking at these sort of art genre films. This week we're going to be looking at an art film that plays with all the genres, the act of killing. We'll talk about what that means here in just a few minutes. But before we do that, we've got to do some introductions. To my right, if you would, sir. My name is Dalton Stewart, and you might not know this, but my name comes from the word free men. I, you know it does. Moving counterclockwise, if you would, sir. I am Arthur Gordon, and it is easier with a banana in your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> At 9 o'clock. I'm still here, people. <laughs> Oklahoma just keeps sucking me back in. Caleb Masters, still here. Thought it was out and they pulled me back in. And uh, we're so glad you're still here for now, though, Caleb, and glad that you're here for the show. My name is Dustin Sells, and I am so glad to be with you gentlemen talking about the movie The Act of Killing. Now, we're as happy as one can be talking about a film about genocide. The Act of Killing is, uh, is a movie that we're going to do some analysis with. It is nominated for Best Documentary this year at the 2014 Oscars. But before we get into our analysis, now again, spoilers ahoy. I don't know if there's really a spoiler. There are, I guess, but this is an analysis show. And so we are going to talk about the mental and uh, personal journey of some of the characters, so there is some spoiler to be I, I would say the last, we are going to discuss the last 15 or so minutes of this film, and I feel like that's pretty spoilery, because it's kind of the whole point of the film, I feel like. Yeah. I, th- I think you could be right. So, yeah, that's absolutely. Uh, but before we do that, we're going to give you a brief synopsis and our brief reviews, and then if you do not want to be spoilt with a T, um, you can pause the podcast check it out on Netflix, and then come back and listen to the rest. But let's begin with a synopsis from the voice of the cinema. Mr. Arthur Gordon, if you would, sir. A documentary that challenges former Indonesian death squad leaders to reenact their real-life mass killings in whichever cinematic genres they wish, including classic Hollywood crime scenarios and lavish musical numbers. That's right. 2.5 million people were killed from 1965 onward in Indonesia after a military coup. All of them accused of either being communist or Chinese or union members or simply not popular. And so uh, some of those who committed the killings uh, were gangsters. Who were those gangsters who hustled movie tickets? outside the theaters for Hollywood movies. Uh, It turns out the communists did not like the Hollywood cinema so much, and so there's a connection there, and they were more than willing to enter into the fight, and these men are now gathered around and recreate the genocide, or politicide. We talked about this when I mentioned that I was fired up about this film a few shows ago, and we still don't have a proper word, I don't think, for what's going on I'd here. say you could probably just call it a genocide after having seen the film. Yeah, I think it's probably the closest thing we could say, because most of them, many of them were ethnic Chinese, though um, there were certainly Indonesians themselves, Jakartans and whatnot, Javanese, um, that were executed as well. That being said, 
we are going to be examining this film, but before we do that, we need to do our quick review, our thumbs up, thumbs down. Does this work? Does this not work? And maybe the question is, does this work as a documentary, and how is it problematized? I ask you first, Mr. Caleb Masters. Uh, thumbs up, for sure. Uh, this is, uh, I think this does work as a documentary. I think it's really good. Um, two things to note on this. Uh, it's a really long documentary. Uh, it's over two hours long, which, as far as documentaries go, is pretty long. My recommendation is, uh, I guess, is more of a recommendation than a review. Two things. Watch in the theater, if that's possible, where you're not distracted by things and you're really honed in. Or two, watch this in two or three chunks. And the, the reason I say this is, there's some pretty intense stuff we're having to, like, sit through... And I needed time to like emotion, uh, to digest both mentally and emotionally. I was like, "Whoa!" I mean, by the time I like digested what I just saw ten minutes ago, we were on to the next thing, where it's equally or even more like, "Whoa!" So uh, yeah, I, I say if you're not going to watch this in a theater in a close setting where you're really, really focused, this is a good one to watch. Uh, take take some breaks, either take some breaks in the same night, watch over two days or so. Um, and I don't recommend that for most movies, but this is one in which uh, the the structure of the movie. There are certain times I think it notes there's a good time to break. Um, other other than other than the, the length and the content, though, I think this is a really interesting documentary that is giving us an inside look at the, the terrors that really do exist out there. This is not a movie. Um, this is not Hollywood. This is real. This is Hollywood. Uh, this is us getting a look at the real life that inspires Hollywood, um, which is actually quite terrifying. Or the real life that Hollywood inspires. Yeah, uh, but overall, I think this is definitely worth watching, especially if you're into documentaries, and especially if you're looking into the 2014 Oscar race. So, highly recommend it. Thank you, Mr. Caleb Masters. Mr. Dalton Stewart, what say you, sir? I would say, right off the bat, that I think one of the most important things about the act of killing is that it reminds um, Western liberals that the 60s weren't sweet. Um, the 60s have been heavily romanticized because they were a pretty rad time in the West. You know, we're doing a lot of drugs, listening to a lot of music, having a lot of sex. But the reason that was happening is because the rest of the world was a total shit show, if you'll pardon the expression, uh, during the 60s. That's not an expression. I think you made that up. Well, we'll keep rolling anyway. Um, you know, uh, the Western democracies and uh, the Soviet Union made the rest of the world a battleground for the entirety of the 1960s uh, and onward. And Southeast Asia in particular, and to some extent Latin America really has continued to suffer and pay for that in a way that uh, the USSR, the former USSR and uh, the United States of America have not. Um, and I think that's really a really important thing that the act of killing does is it forces uh, the Western world to reevaluate uh, its memory of the 1960s as a decade. Um, I will say that I don't know if it's entirely successful as a documentary because you do certainly feel... Uh, Oppenheimer kind of directing things a little bit. I, I wouldn't say he goes out of his way to make things happen, but you can feel his hand guiding things a little bit, I feel like. Uh, which I feel like helps. Uh, it, it, it makes the film cohesive. It gives her something uh, to hold on to and a, a really a human story to put yourself behind uh, in, in a film that could otherwise be a, a very rote, very uh, droll uh, look at genocide, as documentaries about genocide often can be. It's just these many people died, these many people killed, these many people, this happened for this long. And it can just kind of titter on like that. But It I think, certainly does not try to create a, a sense of objectivity. No, I, I think I think it's very gonzo in that. In that Oppenheimer, although he doesn't ever appear on camera himself, you hear his voice off camera several times uh, speaking uh, with um, the subjects of the documentary. It does certainly have that, that gonzo journalism feel of it, of being involved in what you are documenting. 
Um, but I really think this is a, a very powerful film about about human remorse uh, and human evil uh, and the banality of evil and, and how it can become a very just kind of a you know, by the numbers uh, calculated thing. Uh, last but certainly not least, I want to talk about two things in particular that happened in the film that really just uh, struck me. One is a scene in which they rehearse uh, in a, like, a small... I couldn't tell where they... They were inside of a building. They were rehearsing a scene, and you could tell that it had stopped being a scene for the children. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. that's, that's a really mm-hmm. powerful scene. They wouldn't not, stop crying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was very hard to watch. The other thing I want to talk about is Herman. Herman Kota. Herman, Herman's got some problems. Can, can we can we agree that Herman is definitely in love with An- Anwar? I, I oh definitely in love with Anwar. I, when you watch Anwar, Anwar will um, cross his legs or fan himself. Herman will immediately start doing the same no thing. No way. Yeah, I noticed to do it with the hat. With the the hat that was when yeah. I noticed it the first time. No that he is way. always very lovingly listening to Anwar and very close to him. I really think Herman Koto is uh, in love with Anwar Congo. I like legitimately, not not like in a. Not, not I'm not just trying to say this to be like oh, 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 two dudes close to each other. <laughs> I, I like legitimately think he has an undealt with uh, love for Anwar that he hasn't uh, fully processed, which might explain some of the drag. He really seems to enjoy getting to dress. Yeah. By the way, there's a lot of drag. All, all Herman. All Herman. All Herman. All the time. Well, thank you, Mr. Donald Stewart, uh, for that uh, quick review. Mr. Arthur Gordon, what say you, sir? You know, one of the interesting things I think here, and it just came to my mind, is when we did Imaginary Witness, we had talked about uh, seeing a movie from the point of view of the Nazis. And I think this comes about as close as you can get. Yeah. Absolutely. To, do, to capturing that. That's a good point. And that just struck me. I just wanted to kind of point that out. Uh, as far as review, honestly, when I finished the movie, I didn't know how to respond. I was, I was taken aback from the first opening minutes of this movie. You know, uh, it really kind of stops you in your tracks. But this was definitely one of the more horrifying and disheartening things I think I've ever seen. I think the final thirty to forty minutes of the film are very powerful. And this is where I think, <clears throat> from a pacing standpoint, it really starts to pick up. Yeah, um, I think this is an important film to see. If you can, if you can get through it, I think it speaks volumes about society and man and and violence and, and that kind of thing. Uh, that being said, I, I struggled with this uh, not just because of the content, but I was quite bored at times, and especially in that first hour. There's a couple of stretches, yeah, yeah, um, and it's, it's certainly it's hard to watch and it's it's off putting, but even just the pacing and things like that really kind of slowed it down. This is this is one of those movies we talked about our compliance uh, and Letterboxd gives you this option. This is a four-star, four four-and-a-half-star movie, but I do not like it at all. I do not like the experience of having to sit here and watch this stuff. Because uh, it's That's it's hard. fair. It's hard. Certainly. I would agree with that. I mean, it's one of those movies you, you really admire, but you don't really like. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. One of the interesting things to note, talking about the, this film, uh, in the credits, they're almost, what, 80, probably 70 to 80% probably anonymous. Yeah. That's really was interesting to me. Uh, I was really, I was struck by that, too. I noticed. That kept me watching probably the majority yeah. of the credits. Excellent, excellent. Thank you for that review, Mr. Arthur Gordon. I would say similar things that have been said already. I I really, really enjoyed the movie. I think the premise itself is brilliant. To get these guys to talk about what happened through reenactments, telling them that we've got a production budget, Mm -hmm. whatever you can imagine, we'll do it. We'll put it together and we'll reenact it however you would. And then they would choose to do this 
crazy genre mashup of genocide. I can and, only imagine what the finished product of the film they made looks like. I, I want to see it, sort of. Yeah, in a dark, <laughs> twisted sort of way. I kind of want to see it too. <laughs> and and I I'm still just very very troubled by all that. But I, I really think the film is 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 just brilliant, absolutely just genius. It is. I have not seen all the Oscar nominated films. Uh, for the doc- best documentary film for 2014, but I am not surprised that this has been um, one of the top ones. I mean, it just it just absolutely makes sense. It made my top five list. There's truly an uncanny moment in how much Anwar looks like when he's got his white hair, mm-hmm. because he goes ahead and dyes his hair black to look like he was when he was a young yeah. man for the reenactments. How much he looks like Nelson Mandela. I was thinking the same. Oh yeah. I mean, it's disturbing. Mm-hmm. It is a very weird, like flip of the coin type deal. Because we are looking at a monster. Who looks just like one of the greatest... The world's grandfather. Yeah, the world, the greatest, one of the greatest heroes of the 20th century. And uh, so that's troubling. But I, 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 it's, it's fantastic. I, I think it's rendered very well. It's edited brilliantly. Uh, paced better in the last uh, third than it is in the first two thirds. That's fair. I still enjoy it a whole lot. And there is this movie needs to be seen. It needs to be seen by pretty much everybody. Because um, those monstrosities need to be known and named... And uh, that is part of how we prevent these things from happening in the future. So I like it a lot. Thank you, gentlemen, uh, for those uh, quick reviews. Let's move on now to our analysis. Spoilers, ahoy! All right, we are real. We are. Uh, <laughs> we are going to get all up into that. So look out for that. We're going to just talk about now what's going on, on the inside of this movie, how it's put together, structure, history, theory, all that good stuff. I begin with you, Mr. Arthur Gordon, if you would, sir. I really don't have a lot here for analysis, and that was one of the things that I kind of struggled through this, was trying to figure out what. And that's one of those things, um, with all the documentaries even, it was kind of tough for me to come up with something to analyze, because it is a different type of film form. And so for that, it kind of threw me, it catches me off guard. But what I want to do want to talk about is the realization that this film brings about the movies that we watch daily. Uh, there seems to be this underlying conversation going on here about film and its power, mm-hmm. and I think that's why the genre thing is so important in Active Killing. Uh, what the movie helps us to realize, and what is truly frightening about it, uh, that these men are cold-blooded killers, uh, but their families love them all the same. They're celebrated by the press. Uh, those types of reactions. All of these traits sound like they could be found in a fictional movie. Uh, because in these films that we watch all the time, we see the characters like Hannibal Lecter, or Vito Corleone, and Tony Montana. And these guys who order people to be killed, or kill people themselves, and show zero remorse. And we think, yeah, it's scary, but it's a movie. And at the end of the movie, the credits will roll, and everything will go back to normal. What the act of killing shows us is that these types of characters are real, and they are living in the present time. We could fly over then and meet them if we wanted to. If that were to arise, we could go over there and say hi. I don't want to. I I vote no. I don't want to ever shake and walk. But they're over there right now. I kind of want to kick it with Herman. (laughs) In drag. Take for the boom. Obviously. Well, you know, Anwar's kind of a party guy. You know, he'd been a lot of alcohol, smoked a lot of marijuana. <laughs> that was Anwar. No, that was Anwar. Well, I mean, as I say, Anwar's kind of a party you, guy. What do you call it? Ex- ecstasy. Ecstasy. What do you call it? Ecstasy. That's, That's right. That's right. <laughs> uh, certainly, uh, we've all encountered know about things like the Holocaust and slavery and other mass atrocities. Yet we are so far removed from them that we typically see them in history books or experience them in a fictional film, mm-hmm. at least the majority of audiences. Things like Django Unchained, 12 Years a Slave, Schindler's List, and so on. And even in these situations where we know the atrocities are real, the films can't capture the full truth of the situation. And even then, at the end of the day, the movie is over, and we go back to our normal lives, knowing that Hitler is dead and slavery has been abolished. 
So once again, everything is perfect in our worlds. Uh, the act of killing hits a lot closer to home. Not only does that make it scarier and more upsetting, but it makes all of those other films, events, and characters even more terrifying. Because the act of killing somehow makes it all real, and it allows us to understand that there are people like Lecter, like the Corleones, in the real world with us. And they really don't feel remorse for the things that they've done. Thank you for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. I ask you now, Mr. Caleb Masters, what analysis bring you? Uh, so, this was a movie I, I had a hard time ana- uh, bring analysis to because uh, this is a pretty intense conversation. I picked up on some of the stuff Arthur did about um, uh, the way that they, these killers say they're inspired by the, the movies, which I find utterly disturbing because it's always one of those things you hear about and you're like, oh, that's not, I mean, it's just, a, you know, they say that in the Scream movies, for yeah. instance, where you're like, oh, yeah, I'm sure they say that. But no, 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 these guys legitimately said... Oh yeah, well we learned. Uh, we we thought we got more creative because we watched more of The Godfather yeah. and Scarface and stuff. And I was that. I mean, like just unnerved and beyond to no, to no ends because you know, again, these people are really out there. Um, my analysis has more to do with how history is written by the winners. Okay, mm-hmm. so these guys are heroes in their country. These mass murderers are heroes in their country because they killed the communist threat. They got the they they got the communists out of their country. They scared them out of their country, right? Better dead than red. Better dead than red. And guess what? They're heroes. They're, why? Because the communists lost. They didn't take over their country. They didn't take over Indonesia. So, uh, in reality, I, th- I thought your analogy with the, the Nazis was, was dead on. This is like if the, if the Nazis had won World War II and we were making telling a story about them. This is what the stuff they talk about. Oh, yeah, we killed those Jews. And, it was, and people would be like, all right. Yeah, they'd be celebrities. Some of these generals and stuff like that. This is, what, this is what this movie is. Um, and uh, we can see we can see the way that the media handles these people. They glorify them as heroes. They talk about oh, and and you 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 came up with some new techniques to kill people, right? Yeah, they would talk about it like it was a good old thing, you know. Um, utterly disturbing. Uh, utterly disturbing. The celebration of the efficiency of killing on the talk show. On a talk was, show, this isn't even like a night show. This is a freaking talk show. It's on during the daytime. It was harrowing. It's like Doctor Phil talking to uh, John Wayne Gacy. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, celebrating how he mass murdered mm-hmm. his victims. But tell me more about the raping. I mean, that's yeah. really the kind of the questions. I mean, it's, it's very yeah. disturbing. I don't care how flat you make a pancake. It's got two sides. Uh, absolutely. Uh, so, uh, with my analysis, I mean, you can pick up the the way that these guys um, talk about they they reminisce about how they killed these people, like it was just a pastime, you know. So you've got all these terrible things, uh, and the way that history, was, the country remembers them as heroes. And I, I said, take that to the next level, and, and it made me start thinking. How many times in history have there been terrible things done that remember people as heroes, you know? Talk about the French Revolution. Well, of course, that turned out all good and well, but how many people died? And it really brings in the question, uh, you know, we talk about violence on the show a lot, obviously. Um, and whether, I mean, it's a question of how, how our violence, I think the movie is trying to get across that, it's never right or, or okay. I mean... Ever for any reason? I mean, yeah, the hit, we're gonna remember these guys as the good guys, right? I mean, not us, but country remember the good guys. But when, when you actually see what they were doing, the scene where the, the girls, the kids, the children couldn't stop crying because they were so terrified, and it wasn't even a real thing. Um, those types of things, uh, the movie is getting across that violence like this is unacceptable. It doesn't matter under what circumstances, because I, the, the generals who were there, who were acting. Um, those, those people that were there really were monsters in that in that recreation scene. You know what I mean? Like, the, there was no... Yeah, maybe even if you were behind their cause, the, the, the spokesperson even said, whoa, whoa, whoa. 
we're making you look too much like monsters and, and savages, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that the movie's trying to get across that. This type of violence, it exists today, and it's not okay at anywhere because when, when we take the lives of other people, we become, we, we, we are uh, going through the steps of dehumanizing, we are dehumanizing somebody. We are cheaping their life. We're uh, and we're cheaping our own lives. Yeah. Uh, we're, we were, we are becoming, uh, you know, barbaric, savages, bloodthirsty. Um, so this movie is obviously getting the root of um, violence and whether it's okay. Uh, and yeah, history is going to remember it as well. The winners won, so those were the good guys. But Revolutionary War uh, in America, the Civil War in America. Any war that's ever been fought, yeah, the winners end up looking like the good guys because they won. But the things that they we do to humans to each other throughout time and history and all all this stuff is always evil. It is never good. You never speak the atrocities of the winners. I think that's totally true. Exactly. And this is totally an example. And, of and that. this is blatant example about how how these guys who are just so blatant, they're just so obviously evil people. How they're celebrated, uh, and so I, I think you're right, and um, I, I, I do believe that the the movie does give us a really good uh, hope for humanity at the end with Anwar, who does start to realize, wow, we really, really did this, um, and it's not right, and it's not okay, and human beings, we we should be better. Absolutely, absolutely, and I, I think that is uh, part of the value of the movie. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Caleb Masters, Mr. Dalton Stewart, Dalton Stewart. What say you? I'm going to play loose and fast um, with my analysis because I got a lot of things. You're welcome. I got a lot of things I want to talk about uh, that are are really, this film made me think about. Uh, I I do want to start with sociology, but then we're going to move on to some other stuff. Uh, Obviously, you can't talk about sociology without talking about social inequality. And you can't talk about inequality without talking about power. Money is the McMansion in Sarasota that starts falling apart after 10 years. Power is the old stone building that stands for centuries. I cannot respect someone who doesn't see the difference. The idea that you cannot define anything as evil because it is a purely subjective definition like truth, like good, uh, like morality. Um, but we talk about the subjectivity of morality a lot. We don't talk about the subjectivity of evil very much. And I think it's important to note here, while these acts are inherently bad, I don't think you can say that the perpetrators of them are evil. I think these are all complex people who had their own reasons for participating in what they did. Anwar's were purely economic. He didn't give a shit about communism, but what he cared about was that he couldn't make a dollar. Um, and I think that's, we see that with most of the characters who were gangsters as, a, as opposed to members of the paramilitary organizations. Um, but that was just something that I thought about where you were, where you were giving your analysis, Ken. Lastly, I want to talk about why film is by far the most superior art form of all art forms ever. Because I don't think any other single art form could you make and then digest yourself and then have a total 360 worldview change. Uh, Anwar doesn't... I, and again, this might be due to some of uh, Oppenheimer's directing... Um, but we don't see Anwar become a, a different person until he sits down to watch the scenes in which he's being murdered. I think it's very interesting that he chose to film so many scenes of him being murdered. Uh, himself I, being murdered. Th- yeah, himself. To be very clear. Yeah. yeah, sorry. Anwar, the perpetrator who was, you know, uh, noted early in the film, talked about how good he was at killing people, by the end of the film is participating in several scenes for their film within the film, 
where he is the one being murdered. And, and it's interesting to see him choosing, I don't know what made him choose to do that, I really would like to know why he was like, I want a lot of scenes of me being murdered. And as he watches him, totally changes his worldview. And by the end of the film, he can't think about what he's done without wanting to throw up. Yeah. And I think if Anwar had painted a painting of himself being killed and then looked at it, he wouldn't have had the same effect. If he'd written a novella, it wouldn't have had the same effect. If he had done anything but make a film, it wouldn't have had the same effect. And I think this film, oddly, at the end of the day, shows you why film is such a powerful medium and why it has, I, I think, the power to move mountains. You know, that's why we do what we do here. And thank you for that analysis, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Dustin Sells, you've seen this film more than anybody else sitting at the table. What do you think about it? You know, I like it a lot, as I said already. And um, I, I think that what I find brilliant in this film is it, it really kind of brings up um, Hannah Arnett's concept in Eichmann in Jerusalem, which is the banality of evil. You know, and you've already talked about that just for a moment uh, today, uh, Dalton. This idea that... The people that committed the Holocaust, not Hitler, not necessarily some of the, the great higher-ups, but most of the people... But Johann's Q SS officer, and I did there. And, and, right, and, and then these cats, you know, again, uh, Anwar and uh, Herman, Herman, which is the strangest Indonesian name. Right? Don't you agree? Oh, absolutely. They are really... I mean, well, I wouldn't say Herman's all that normal, but Anwar certainly is. <laughs> Anwar is. She seems like a pretty regular guy. He's out fishing with he's his buddies. He's got like kid, kids and grandkids. He's like he's watch like, like movie time with the grandkids. They, watch that granddaddy get strangled, <laughs> which is really weird. But, is but, weird. But, but he does seem to have to be a family man. Yeah, he does seem to have rational relationships with other people. He seems to be Herman doesn't, but. But they both seem to be Herman's at least weird. fairly well adjusted to society. And there's that there's that scene where he's with his grandkids and they're playing with the ducks and he has this grace and this mercy towards oh the duck. God, yeah. that's such a good scene. Yeah, it is. The, you <laughs> broke the duck's like, tell the duck you're sorry. Pet him. Tell Pet him you mean to. Oh my god. That scene killed me. Yeah, I mean and this guy is a monster. He, but he is a depth. He is a person. At the end of the day, yeah. he's still a human being. That has a lot of interesting wheels going on. And I, I think sometimes what we try to do, we talked about this when we talked about serial killers back in Shocktober, and we'll probably talk about it again anytime we do a, a slasher kind of movie. Uh, this idea that we like to create these monsters, these, these boogeymen. And it turns out when we begin to actually examine uh, some of the worst people, morally worst people, that they're not much in... Unlike the rest of us. Well, and it came up in Docu December when we were doing Cropsey. Mm -hmm. uh, speaking about Cropsey, whose name I cannot remember, it makes it easier when you tie it in with the Satanic Panic. When you tie it in with when you try to dehumanize uh, the person in question, the the villain in question, it makes it easier to digest. And, and this movie does not flinch from the humanity no. of Anwar, mm -hmm. of Herman. Of others, there's a whole digression going through uh, Herman's friggin' parliamentary campaign. Yeah, which is strange. Yeah, I could have done without it, that. Well, it talks about the the whole corrupt political system there in Indonesia. Yeah. Uh, you know, the buying of the votes and, yeah. and whatnot. And I thought to myself, well, see what your fascism has got you now. Yeah, and, well, I can't uh, get elected because I can't buy these votes. Yeah, good job, bud. Uh, yeah, well done, sir. <laughs> um, aren't you proud of yourself? Uh, so there's there's certainly that at work in the film, and it makes it. 
you know, very disturbing mm-hmm. in a way that I think we need to be confronted with. That, that evil is not something out there. Uh, John Carpenter talks about this when he talks about um, horror films. And there's two kinds of horror films where you're gathered around mm-hmm. the campfire and you say, you know, the evil's out there and the forest's out there and you know, the other tribe's out there uh, amongst them. And, and then there's another kind of horror story where you say, evil's seated around this fire with me. Mm-hmm. You know, it's right here beside us. And that is part of what this film is doing, and I, I, I find that itself to be brilliant. And, and then the fact that it reveals the evil to the evildoers in, in Anwar's quote-unquote conversion in the film. And um, I have to, again, utter the name of Walter Benjamin, not this time from his uh, theses on philosophy. This time I want to look at um, his arcades, and he says this, Waking, Awakening to history, to the historical fact uh, it is perhaps the synthesis of dream consciousness and waking consciousness. Then a moment of awakening would be identical with a now of recognizability in which things put on their true dash surrealist face. Now break that down. What does that mean? Yeah, because uh, it is it's dense because he's German philosoph- philosoph- He's a German philosophical writer, and they don't like to make things easy. But what I think he's trying to say is that we have to have this sort of confrontation between our fantasies and our reality when we can actually see the two items meet and in there we actually find reality because the reality that's going on in Anwar's mind as he is beginning this project is he's a hero who did terrible things. I think there's no doubt about the terrible. Yeah, he doesn't ha- ever have any qualms about what he did being bad. Yeah. But, but it's heroic. But it's heroic. It's justifiable. But then the fantasy element, the the dream element, enters in, and he begins to act out these fantasies, and he begins to see them in their completely imagined awful horror. There, there is the sense. I remember looking at that last scene, which is also the first scene that they recreated with the very, very foggy lens and the ladies standing in front of the waterfall, and it's gorgeous, and Herman in the best drag blue dress of all time. Pink. Is it, no, it's just blue then, it's pink when he's dancing in front of the fish. I was thinking about the fish, sorry. This is this is the waterfall scene. Gotcha. And uh, Anwar is receiving this medal from someone as they pull the wire off mm-hmm. their neck. Thank yeah. you for sending me to heaven. And I'm watching Anwar, and he doesn't believe it. No. He doesn't believe it for a minute. He's, he's already scripted it. But he doesn't believe it because he's now being confronted with the fantasy. But it's only in the fantasy that he actually is able to recognize the reality, which is what the surrealists were all about, right? Okay. The dream world and the real world. Actually, you cannot separate the two. If you meet them both in the middle, you find the truth. And, and so that's exactly what Anwar experiences. And, of course, the last scenes, these vomit scenes, are, are, are very psychoanalytical, they're very Freudian, uh, they're very Lacanian, in that there's this idea that you only create selfhood through difference. And his entire selfhood that he created up to this point has totally been dissolved by this encounter with the truth through fantasy, through the recreations that are not real. And so he has to create something that's not him, which is the vomit on the floor, which is what we do when we're babies. We know where the poop is not us. That's how we find our self. Hood. Everybody and poops. It ever you know it turns out they all do, uh, and so he's he's in that moment. It's the same thing in the Matrix when Neo finally realizes everything he knows is not true. What's the first thing he does? He vomits, and so again he creates a new reality, a new set of associations because everything he thought he knew no longer applies, and so he has to vomit. And so that's of course fictionalized um, retelling of Lacan. Here we're seeing a 
documentary where that sort of difference has to be made, that sort of distinction and, 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 and polarity has to be declared. And it's all because of an encounter with the fantasy and reality that brings it about. And I think there's something to truth. And you, you were talking about the power of cinema. And I, I think that's a big reason why I do what we do here on this show is because I, I truly do believe that when we encounter these stories, these narratives, these fantasies, that we are forced to reckon with our realities in different ways. Certainly. And that it can be positively or negatively at times revolutionary in a person's life. And I think we see the power of the movies at work here in this, that it is that sort of surreal, real fantasy um, interface, dialectic, if you want to use Benjamin's word, to uh, transform uh, life in persons. All right, gentlemen. Well, thank you so much for all your analysis. Thank you so much for enduring a very difficult film. So let's move on to the final portion of the show in which we um, give our final verdict, which we uh, begin to ask ourselves, shell for trash, else or instead. I ask you first, Mr. Dalton Stewart, what say you? Um, I, I'm going to say shelf. Yeah, this is an important film. It's a great film. It really is. I, I, I would agree that there are some, with uh, Arthur and Caleb, that there are some pacing issues. I think it's probably more conducive to watching in a movie theater or a, a setting in which you're, you're, you're trapped to some extent. But um, I think it's a very good film and a very powerful film. That being said, uh, I don't want to watch it like every day. In fact, else no. you should probably watch The Raid. To really, uh, yes, like better. In, uh, sorry, a different Indonesian. Yeah, movie. well, an Indonesian film also made by a British filmmaker. Yes, uh, some some fun violence to wash down all of that uh, real world icky violence. That also still probably has some interesting things to say about the nature of violence. I agree. Brief addendum, by the way. It turns out Joshua Oppenheimer is actually American. I assumed he was English because the uh, Anwar and his homies call him. Uh, mention that he's from London, mm. but he's actually an American based out of Copenhagen. Weirdly. So apparently dude speaks like eight languages. Ninja. Fancy. Yeah, no joke. But anyway, watch The Raid, because it's also Indonesian, and also has gangsters, and also has violence, but a much different kind. And, and it's somewhat fun to watch. Oh, it's so, fucking oh, great. It's incredible to watch. Having watched it twice in the last seven days, I can uh, attest to that. Mr. Caleb Masters, what say you, sir? Uh, this is definitely a shelf. Uh, like Dalton said, uh, it's not a shelf that I'm going to watch every day, um, nor every week. I think it's a great movie. Oh, no. I think everyone needs to see. So uh, I have it on my shelf so I can lend it to other people and maybe revisit it at some point. Um, and I, I definitely say to you, <laughs> gentlemen, this is a shelfer. Uh, and it's a great movie. Elser instead, Full Metal Jacket, and Scarface, cause, uh, uh, and Platoon. Gangsters. Platoon. All three of these movies, two of them are mentioned in the, fl- the, the film. And I think that it's worth noting that these, these people are inspired by American film. It's kind of looking at where they come from. This country, you gotta make the money first. Then when you get the money, you get the power. Then when you get the power, then you get the woman. We're also looking at the nature of violence, uh, monsters, what creates monsters, and I guess particularly Full Metal Jacket, the act of killing, and what does it do to human beings. Excellent, Mr. Caleb Masters. I thank you for that. Mr. Arthur Gordon, let's say you shelf for trash, else, or instead... Yeah, I think this goes on the shelf. I don't know that I revisit it often. Uh, maybe once in a decade. I don't even know. It's painful. It's but uh, it, this is really beneficial, I think, as a reference point. Uh, but it would also be very good in the classroom uh, in a variety 
of classroom settings. You psychologists. Well, I think all children should be made to watch it. Uh, I think you watch this. Uh, I I would say you watch this with Schindler's List, mm-hmm. and I'd also say watch it with The Godfather because there are probably a lot of correlations there between uh, Vito Corleone and Anwar. Well, guys, what I would probably suggest is that this is totally a shelf movie. I mean, it's it's worth seeing. It's worth owning. It's worth making sure that you have access to it more often than Netflix will have the rights to it. What else you should watch? Uh, Singing in the Rain, because uh, they're trying to turn murder into a musical, and it's an important musical. Now, that's not really a related musical in any way, but I think that is part of their inspiration, and that disturbs my viewing as I begin to think backward towards Singing in the Rain and what they're trying to do with what they've done. Gene Kelly was a madman. It was obviously a homicidal maniac. <laughs> uh, so there is something going on there, and so Singing in the Rain, I think, seems to be the most quintessential, most Hollywood of all musicals, and so I recommend that. Um, I would also go ahead and recommend the uh, 2013 uh, film, The Square, because The Square does something different. It talks about revolution as well, because what we faced in 1965 in Indonesia was a revolution that was fully violent, that was fully dehumanizing. And... What Tahir Square talks about is a revolution in Egypt which is fully passive, fully peaceful, and fully humanizing. And uh, not successful, but continuing. Hippie. Yeah. Look well, how well that turned out. It's still turning out, though. They got a new constitution last month. I was, jo- I was joking. Okay, sorry. I was being facetious. I promise. Okay. <laughs> it's turning out. It just, and, you know, it only took like six months for it to get overthrown by the military, though. Which is kind of a bummer. Well... Which is an interesting point, because even though the military overthrow happens because the will of the people was not being done by the elected governance, even elected governance finds out that it has to fear the people after it's elected in Tahir Square. And so there's a military overthrow, which results in the new constitution, which we just had ratified last month, it's February now, and the possibility of new election here in just a few months. Oh, good job, Egypt. It's very exciting. It is exciting. And and the fact that people say, we're going to take control and take power, and we're not going to use the weapons of violence to maintain that power. I find that to be fantastic, and I also find that to be a great antidote to uh, the just the ugly feeling one feels after watching the act of killing. It makes you feel icky. It It may be the better film of the two. I really don't know. It's a very close heat for me right now. But... uh, it, it's it's different in that sense, and I think that dialogue is fascinating and important, and so I recommend that highly. And then watch all the westerns because that seems to be part of what they do. Uh, I would say Two Mules for Sister Sarah, which just happens to be on the Flicks and Nets. Singing my song, that's a good one. It's a good one, and uh, it seems to be part of the inspiration of one of the reenactments that we see in the film. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> because it's Herman Shirley, McCla- Shirley MacLaine's much more attractive than Herman <laughs> Herman's got his vice we're going to talk a little bit about how we can keep this conversation going we hope you do check out the act of killing we recognize that sometimes you listen to the show just to hear about the movie because you know the conversation is fun and we have witty banter and uh, we make good jokes and all that jazz but we really do encourage you to check out the movie the act of killing and also to Check us out about our analysis to to say, hey, does that work? Does that really work? Is that really the thing? Did you really look at this as carefully as you should have? Or to just flat out agree or disagree or suggest another possibility. And you can do all of that via social media. Do you know anything about social media, Dalton Stewart? Dustin, I have here in my hand files that show 
Twitter has infiltrated the American government. That's all I got. I don't, I don't know. You're talking about Justin McCarthy, but you yeah. sound like John Kennedy. You sound like Kennedy. John Kennedy. Yeah. I, I, it happened, and I decided to go with it because it was fun. Wrong team. Yeah, definitely. Ladies and gentlemen, you can find <laughs> the Good Trash Genre Cast on Twitter. Ask not! Nobody nobody from Boston has ever talked like that. Other than JFK and RFK. That's totally true. Yeah. Do we have any feedback from the Twitter? Uh, we do. We have quite a bit. Coming in this week on the Twitter, uh, once again, we've got Mr. Caleb Vesley. That's at K de- uh, underscore love underscore Vesley on Twitter. Uh, asking us for some clarification on our Letterboxd movie count. He want to know if we're doing uh, For the Year... Uh, just films we watched for the first time or all the movies we watched and we went ahead and let them know it's every film you watch in the year of 2014 uh, is going to be the final count and who's winning that by the way Uh, it's you as (laughs) if you didn't already know (laughs) I just just thought I'd ask we also had a uh, a a fun discussion that I I retweeted uh, maybe I just favorited I Portions of it uh, featuring uh, the Good Trash Genre cast Dustin conversing with uh, one of his colleagues about uh her being a Harry Potter expert, uh, and, and, uh, and maybe yes. that might be something we might talk about in a future marathon. I don't know. Keep your eyes peeled. I don't, I don't pay attention. Uh, lastly, Caleb Vesley wanted to know wanted us to know that his movie count update was uh, twenty nine for the year so far. I think I'm like nineteen. I'm way behind. That's only like twenty behind me. I'm at forty one. I watched a lot of TV shows, guys. I, right. I need to. That's why I didn't even get I'm the contest. I'm at 49. I can't remember. Oh well, God. you're at 49 now, I think. Is it? Yeah. Northwest, Northwest. Yeah. 49. God, I'm definitely going to lose. Uh, finally, once again, Caleb Vesley want to know if we are tired of Gosling silent psychopath. He is. There are only so many things a tatted up hunk can't say. I would disagree with that statement, if only because his performance in uh, uh, The Place Beyond the Pines is probably the best of his, his quote, silent psychopaths. Yeah. I'd agree. Uh, but that's all we've got coming in from the Twitters this week. Well, thank you for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Mr. Arthur Gordon, is there yet another medium of social media that is available? Uh, there is. You could find us on Facebook, uh, facebook.com forward slash good trash genre cast, one word. And uh, if you are not on social networking of any sort, uh, then you could send us an email. That's an electronic mail message. At uh, <laughs> goodtrashgenrecast at gmail dot com. Now, now, Arthur, let me let me make sure I understand you correctly. That's a mail. Yeah. That you send electronically. Yeah. Do you, you need do you, a future? Do, do you send it through through the wires? How do you, how do you how do you? You get... send that through the World Wide Web, the information superhighway. And, and how do you, <laughs> do you do you get that on your television? How long has it I been? Think you can. Since the internet was called the Internet Superhighway. That's what I want to know. <laughs> Or the information superhighway. <laughs> Probably 1997. It's been at least, at least 97. <laughs> when did hackers come out? <laughs> About then. Yeah. Back when we were that's running a, DOS on three and a half floppy drives. <laughs> <laughs> I know so much DOS code that is useless now. Buddy, I work for the state of Oklahoma. We're still using DOS. Oh, that sucks. <laughs> that's pretty fun. Windows 3.1. Revolutionary. Do we have any feedback coming in from either of us? Uh, we actually do not have any feedback this week. So. Well, you guys suck. <laughs> Twitter wins this week, guys. I did all I could do. I posted some great pictures of some heroes and people trying oh, yeah. to kill you, and uh, but no. I didn't see it. You guys, we want to talk. We would like to chat. We would like just... We're lonely. This, this actually is just one person hosting the show doing four different voices. Uh, and personalities. It's really so, elaborate ruse. This is the United States of Dustin. <laughs> really is what this is. And, and we are very talented, precious. Um, but 
<laughs> That's a whole other story. Moving on, uh, we are now going to move to our discussion section, not a game section. We originally talked about having a game section. We decided against it. Because our game ideas were like, name your favorite genocide. Which is not very funny, as it turns out. I thought this was going to be a high-energy episode, Dustin! Yeah, about that. It it didn't work out so much. Or maybe your favorite totalitarian maniac biopic that you would like to see happen or that has already happened. I wanted to pick favorite serial killer, not the fictional ones, the real ones. Come on! I am am still holding out for that uh, Benito Mussolini biopic. Are you? (laughs) You'll be holding for a moment, sir. So, I'm going to ask a few questions of the table. You're good at it. And we're going to just see where it goes. The first question I would ask is this. What was the... I'm not going to say best. Mm -hmm. What was the most interesting or surprising or notable in that this was the one reenactment that really stuck out to you that we witnessed in this film? Because they, they have several reenactments. Some of them are genre-based, and some of them are a bit more documentary, kind of a, you know, uh, one of those History Channel reenactment sorts of uh, things. And so I want to ask you first, what do you think was the most powerful or interesting or just, again, most notable reenactment you saw as you watched the film The Act of Killing? Dalton Stewart, I say to you. Um, I think the most viscerally uh, impactful is uh, the reenactment of the massacre that the uh, Pascal youth carried out, I forget where. Uh, what the name of that village was. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, where the Minister of Youth and Sports is like, oh, what did I just agree to? Right. Um, this kind of looks bad. Yeah. Turns out, genocide It's really visceral and like, even it makes the people who even like, who look back on this time as a good time, even makes them be like, oh, oops. Um, I would say the other one that really interesting to, interestingly to me are, are the ones that uh, dig the deepest into Anwar's psyche. Uh, the one where he's dreaming about the communist haunting him, where he's like, that's what he wants to deal with is the fact that he can't sleep at night. Right. And I think that's really interesting that um, he has that much clout amongst these killers is that they're gonna they're agreeing to make that part of their film. And I think that's interesting. Yeah, excellent, excellent. What do you think, Arthur? What was the most impactful reenactment? I think just jumping off of that when he's uh, showing the strangulation by wire. On the the uh, most bare bones one, yeah. Oh, on the way goes to the actual rooftop yeah. itself, and he's he has got the guy, guy dead the wall, and he takes the wire around his neck, pulls it, you know, and because this is how the mafia killed people and dumped the bodies out of their car. Well, the scene is in in the Godfather, right? When the, when they finally killed Talia Shire's uh, husband, the the abusive husband who who sold out, you yeah. know, they garrote him in the car, and they they garrote, yeah, yeah. And, and and it's awful, and yeah. and so yeah, I think that's probably because it just grabs you from the beginning and lets you know what you're kind of in for Mm -hmm. and I think like you said earlier I think uh, during the waterfall uh, shoot when he does the the wire and he gives them the metal that's very disturbing Mm -hmm. yes it is I mean there's a lot of images here that'll stick with you I think excellent excellent thank you for that Mr. Arthur Gordon what do you say Caleb what was the most impactful Uh, reenactment you thought I I think that I mean in the the one movie the movie was going for was that one at the end where you had the the flames were clouding uh, covering everything now was that that the same one with the the youth where where the the children would not stop crying yes that's the the village it's where Herman tells his daughter it's over actresses only cry when they're supposed to yeah you're not a real actress it's the most realist reenactment and I mean there were definitely some moments in that movie where I was like ah gosh I mean like it hit me deep but that was a point where I was literally like mortified I was like Wow, 
because it, it, it's such a the act of killing is such a visceral one that even when they were seriously reenacting with the children and everybody, everybody felt it was off. It wasn't just the kids. Everyone felt it was off and no one walked away feeling like, that was a good reenactment, guys. That was a great shoot, except for the one dude sitting in the corner who's being kind of, you know. God, I hate that. That guy. Oh, no regrets. He was the guy. He was the one guy who had no, no regrets or sympathy about anything. Well, he wasn't old enough to have been there. Yeah. He was, he was a total... Uh, Bureaucrat. Yeah, he, he was a douchebag, and he was just using that to because uh, it was popular to to be associated with that. Fuck that guy. Yeah, and he was basically I hope telling, he dies. He, he was basically telling him to suck no, it up. You know? Not by someone's hand, but you know, like uh, cirrhosis of the liver or something. Turns out one out of every one people dies. That's so. true. And, uh, and I actually that that girl is really pretty. Too bad she bleaches her hair. It makes her look like a whore. Oh my goodness, that's the same guy. So awful. Yeah, he's yeah. awful. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Same yeah, yeah. guy. Terrible. And, and I just have to say, and I hope this isn't. Uh, Hop into your, one of your next questions, but the, the scene early on in the movie that really like when when it hit me, what I was really watching was uh, when the guys start talking about why they use Garrett wire to kill people. Oh, it's the most effective, so you could cut into their neck and they can't pull it out. Like they were like it's like they were just ta- like so nonchalantly yeah. talking about how they would just kill yeah. people, like what their methods were. Yeah. I was just like, banality of evil, man. This is real. What's, what's the best uh, screwdriver for this job? What's the what's the best chainsaw? Oh, what's the best. You know, utensils of strangles. Oh, really? I never yeah. thought of that, Arthur. What, uh, what, yeah. what about the screwdriver? Uh, yeah, wire. Yeah, wire is the best, best bet. Well, it's about efficiency, and it's also about the cleanliness thereof, right? Yeah, because yeah. cl- killing people is messy. Turns out. And how do you, uh, you know, mass produce it? Dustin, what, what were some of the film sequence, the reenactment scenes that really touched you? I think the most powerful for me was the <laughs> was the waterfall sequence uh, because. It seemed to me we got a, a view inside Anwar's head, and again, I, I, I think that as you watch his performance, you know, as much as it is a performance, is that early on he really tried to convince himself that this is what they were asking of him. You know, thank you for killing me. You sent me to heaven, and then he realizes just how empty and hollow that justification is. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we might on this side of it look at, well, that's a ridiculous justification to start with. But the fact of the matter is, it doesn't take much to self-justify. Whatever helps you sleep at night. And, and that, that's really kind of his, his method there. And so I found that very disturbing. I also found the Western scene very disturbing because of this discussion of rape and babies. And, and, and uh, just, it really became quite genuine, even though we're talking about a man in drag. Yeah. Uh, it, it really, there was a reality there. That was just grotesque. Very upsetting in that moment, and the uncanny. They're just of it. they're just popping on their big guy, their big friend's belly. But yeah, it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, you did that. <laughs> the next question I'd ask you, gentlemen, is this: uh, What genre left out should have been included? Arthur Gordon, I ask you, what genre is left out? I think one of the obvious coming out of the horror is going to be slasher. I think that's ripe for the picking for what they're trying to kind of do here. Kind of some POV stalker stuff, maybe? Yeah. I'm trying to think back, because what they're really basing this off is kind of those early studio era genres. And so, I don't know that maybe science fiction would work here at all. Because it wasn't a genre yet when they were a proper genre. Yeah, not proper. Um, I don't know. Uh, what's say you, Caleb Masters? Uh, sci-fi was the one I was going to go with, but go ahead. This is point yeah, one. Is point no, sci-fi. I think sci-fi is existent there, though, yeah. because uh, we have uh, Forbidden Planet, nineteen fifty-eight. We I have mean, all those creatures. You, you know, I guess, I guess, I guess they could have portrayed, uh, uh, done what the Americans did, uh, portrayed the communists as invading aliens, uh, yeah. trying to take over, and you use the. 
the uh, mass murderer, you know, these guys, the, the war criminals, as um, they're the freedom fighters who are fighting off the communist aliens. Mm-hmm. They could have nothing along those lines, I guess, yeah. yeah. But if it was some early sci-fi, some B-movie sci-fi, I guess, yeah. Excellent, excellent. What do you think, Dalton Stewart? Buddy Cop Road Trip. Yeah? Yeah. Okay, prestige love story. Because I want to see Herman tell him, or finally tell him how he feels. Yeah, no doubt. Just what do you think? I, I think that, uh, like, like, like yourself, Dalton, I don't know if I have a whole lot of detail how this would work out, but I keep thinking about how the screwball comedy is applied to Life is Beautiful, mm-hmm. and there's this very Chaplin-esque performance that goes on in that film. And I wonder, which is again in the backdrop of genocide, but for it to be amongst the killers mm-hmm. to be performing this sort of Ooh. slapstick, that I, be interesting? I think there, there's something to that. There's like, a possibility a, there. Like a sadistic Three Stooges. Yeah, yes, exactly. And uh, I mean, I don't know if I would enjoy. <laughs> uh, I don't know if I, I don't know if I enjoy this yeah. any more than I quote unquote enjoy Injuisance the rest of it. But there's something, too, I think, that possibility. Yeah. Well, guys, I think that was some fun discussion and uh, fun conversation surrounding the act of killing. Let's move on to what we always do. Let's talk about what's got us fired up this week in pop culture. I ask you first, Mr. Caleb Masters, are you fired up? I am fired up. It's been a great week in pop culture. And actually, the first thing I'm fired up about is something I somehow we overlooked last week, which was Jesse Eisenberg was cast as Lex Luthor. Uh, and a somewhat unusual slash uh, snore, really. He just doesn't care. He's he's over it. He doesn't care. It's because Ben. Af- you don't like Ben Affleck, do you? No, he's just no, over. He's, he's he's overcasting news. He has been for a while. Oh, uh, okay, gotcha. I feel like uh, in a certain role, Eisenberg could be a great Lex Luthor. I'm curious to see how they go about it. And I all they're also rumbling from Latina Review that apparently not only is Eisenberg playing a younger Lex Luthor, which I'm actually cool with, is a. Uh, um, Apparently he's going to be like a tattooed ex-street thug who like rose up through the ranks of like, I don't know, it sounded really weird. Uh, so, They're uh, kind of hit and miss with their scoops though. So yeah, that, that's true. Latino and Olivia is either dead on or they're, they're not even close. So that, take that for what it's worth. I'm going to bet on the latter. Um, second one. Uh, Lego movie, saw this last weekend. Fan-freaking-tastic. Go check it out. I don't care if you have kids or not. Watch it. It's awesome. And lastly, we get we finally got news on what uh, there was some back and forth between the studio and Darren Aronofsky of what who was going to get what cut of the movie. And we finally got confirmation that after uh, evangelical Christians did not buy into any of the cuts, that Aronofsky is going to have the definitive final cut that will be released in theaters. I'm glad am, for that. I am very glad for that. Studio said, I don't like anything. Fuck it, do what you want. <laughs> when the studio tries really hard to cater to the evangelical crowd, well, it still loses. They were thinking they could ride some of the coattails of something like The Passion of the Christ, and it's just not that kind of movie. No. Because Aronofsky's design is to create something, something more like The Lord of the Rings. Yes with characters that are familiar from the biblical text. And that's not going to be pleasing. He's not telling a literal story. He's telling a fantastical story. He's, he's telling the story of the myth. And borrowing some characters. And borrowing some characters. Um, which is not necessarily going to be unbiblical. It just means different than popular imagination. Insert jokes about the Bible being a myth here. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> that's all I'm fired up about this week, Dustin. Thank you, Caleb Masters, for those things. Mr. Arthur Gordon, what say you? Are you fired up this week? 
I am. The Lego Movie was awesome. Robocop, not so much, but you can check that out on our bonus episode. One thing uh, that I am fired about, the Gordon House has become a little more hipster because we bought a record player. That being said, I was at Vintage Shop perusing the used uh, vinyl, <laughs> and I came across an original copy of the soundtrack to Star Wars. Boner. It was pretty epic, and it is pretty epic to listen to on vinyl, and so that that has me very fired up. Um, it has been made uh, announced that Paul Bettany will be playing Vision in Avengers Two. He will be doing double duty because he also voices Jarvis, and so we'll see how this plays into the storyline. I'm excited about Marvel that. just continuously giving dual middle fingers to DC, <laughs> saying this is how you do it, son. <laughs> the next thing that I'm fired up about. Uh, breaking news out of the Netflix world today that uh, starting on March 7th, uh, Star Wars The Clone Wars uh, will be streaming, including the never-before-released Season 6, which has been in some sort of developmental limbo. Since the acquisition of the Star Wars uh, brand by Disney, um, so this will be an interesting thing to see. Uh, it's something I'm very interested to see because I've kind of been interested in the show for a while now, so I'm excited to see that. Uh, the last thing that I'm fired up about, and this is something I'll probably mention again uh, the next time I record, but every year AMC at Quail Springs hosts a Best Picture Showcase. This is a fine opportunity for you to catch all nine of the nominees. Okay, that's what I've got this week. Well, thank you for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Um, Mr. Dalton, are you fired up? Not particularly. But I did want to... We don't talk. I got a couple things to say. Okay. I usually do. Uh, I, I, I mentioned you know, I mentioned this last week, but I want to go ahead and give you an update. Uh, as I mentioned last week, I uh, picked up the first volume of Brian K. Vaughn's follow-up to Why the Last Man Saga. Uh, it is awesome. In fact, it's so awesome, the day after I finished volume one, I bought volume two. It's that good. I'm loving it. Nice. it it's fantastic. It's this really great uh, 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 marriage of science fiction and fantasy uh, with a lot of really subversive things to say about the nature of warfare and, and its uh, the endless cycle of violence. Uh, also, something I discovered on accident this week, it, I watched Mean Girls, uh, which is a film that I like a lot. Hey, hey no no guilt there, shit. That's a fun uh, movie. Four for you, Glenn Coco. Coco you go, Glenn Coco. And, and none for <laughs> Arthur Gordon. Bye. Uh, this is the 10-year anniversary of Mean Girls. 10 years. It's a 10-year-old film. How is that possible? I vividly remember when that film came out, and it was, like, very popular. I do, too. <laughs> vividly. I feel like Dustin now. You feel old. <laughs> it's just starting, buddy. But uh, I, I, I wrote a little blurb about it on Letterboxd <laughs> after watching it, and, uh, it, man, it, it still holds up. It still has a lot to say, and it's still hilarious. Don't worry. The years have been kinder to you in the movie than they have to Lindsay Lohan. That's <laughs> not <a> joke. True <laughs> that. If you were to look at that cast then, you would not have guessed she would be the one to burn out and not be nobody cares about anymore. And that Amanda Seyfried would be like this big deal Hollywood yeah. girl. Well, not to mention Rachel McAdams is kind of launched her career. Lizzie Kaplan's a you know a critical indie darling. I mean, everyone in that film has gone. Uh, I mean, uh, Tina Fey went on to do Thirty Rock shortly after that film. I mean, everyone has had these like really illustrious careers, except for the lead. Which yeah. is kind of funny, but it's still a great movie, and I, I was just really excited about rewatching it. And I hadn't revisited it. I hadn't uh, visited it. 
visited it? Revisited. In a while. Who gives a crap? There are those many syllables. I right. had, there's a lot of syllables. I hadn't checked it out in a long while, and I was glad mm-hmm. to do so. Excellent, excellent. You know, I still have the canyons in my possession featuring Lindsay Lohan. No, I'm good. Also, James D. E. N. And uh, <laughs> not the um, famous uh, method actor from the 1950s, mind you. No. The porn star from the 20 aughts and teens. Man, he's good at kissing girls. Yeah, I... Okay. Uh, but nonetheless, um, I haven't caught it yet. So um, I'm not fired up about that, as it turns out. I am fired <laughs> up about a new Cohen's project starring George Clooney. Go on. Uh, called Hail Caesar. It's all about making a big, gigantic Cecil B. DeMille-esque uh, biblical e- epic about <laughs> Caesar. But the film's not that. It's about make, trying to make that film. Correct, Mundo. Sweet. <laughs> movies about movies, man. And it's going to be by the Coens, and it's got Clooney, and... You had me at Wes Anderson. <laughs> <laughs> so where's John Goodman? He's in there, right? Yeah. I, oh, yeah, he'll be there. But be that, there. That, that's as much development that has been announced up until this point, so I'm quite excited about that. I'm also very, very excited about a Blu-ray release of a film that we looked at in our very first horror marathon in October. George A. Romero's Creep Show cool. is getting a Blu-ray release. And I think that's kind of exciting. And the world went mild. I know, right? Uh, and so uh, that's just something that's happening. I appreciate that joke, sir. And uh, <laughs> and I just um, the, the features and whatnot's going on. And I think that movie is of a special brilliance, though not everyone around this table would agree with me. I liked it. Okay, don't leave me like that. <laughs> All right. Finally, um, I have one last thing to say uh, uh, about film criticism. There's an article in the most recent Sight and Sound written by uh, Mark Cousins of uh, the Story of Film fame in which he discusses the uh, issues surrounding uh, film criticism and the internet and uh, this whole issue of what it is to be a film critic now because it's not the Pauline Kael, Roger Ebert... Andy Sarah's position any longer. No, it has now become this uh, situation where everyone's doing it for free. A letterboxed. I mean, yeah, yeah. it's the, uh, the, the mass market. What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, democratization. There we go. Democratization of film analysis. And, and so he's beginning to discuss what role, if any, do film critics play any longer in society? But Mark Cousins suggests that part of the role now of film critics is that film critics should play like DJs play. We should spin disc and segue one film to another and keep the dance floor full. That part of our job now as critics is just to keep the discourse of film to film going and helping others to appreciate that which is cinematic. One of uh, my and friend of the show and uh, occasional guest host Nick Sanford's favorite things to do is come up with theoretical double features. Mm-hmm. Uh, just throw a film out and think about the the best film, either thematically, uh, chronologically, uh, artistic team behind it, to, to pair up with that film. And I, I think that's a lot of fun. I think that's a good way to keep the conversation about film going. Well, that's why we do the Elson Instead section yeah. of this show. What, what's uh, what's the wine to go with this cheese? Yeah, and, and, and I think I think that, that was really insightful. It's in the latest edition of Sight and Sound, um, so if you want to check that out, it's called... Uh, his uh, Situation Critical is the title of the article. It can be found perhaps on the interwebs, but it can be found in your local Barnes & Noble um, uh, where those magazines are sold. The next thing I want to say is um, two controversial items. Okay. One of them dealing with uh, Woody Allen and all this crazy uh, that's going on. Yeah. And uh, with the sexual allegations. Mm-hmm. 
Two things I want to say. First of all, there was an investigation of these allegations at the time by police officers, and they felt that there was not enough evidence to act upon it. And it's not like Woody Allen's a, a friend of the, uh, the uh, police establishment. Correct. The second thing is, yes, he did have nude pictures of a 17-year-old daughter uh, of his girlfriend, and that was how he was discovered when uh, his relationship with Mia Farrow broke up. The point is this. Nobody knows anything. Internet, you don't know. Shut up. That's all I have to say. Nobody knows, and in fact, we're dealing with a situation where it is impossible to know. And I am seeing so much Barbara Walters' immediate defense. I'm seeing so much immediate knee-jerk accusation going on against Woody Allen. And the fact of the matter is, there is no way to know. Drop it. That being said, I have seen Manhattan. That was a joke. But true, true. But again, there's a, there's a difference between a 17-year-old and an 8-year-old. Yeah. And uh, morally less ambiguous. Let's just say that for sure. Certainly. Uh, C- I, certainly. And I, I just, I, I feel like this rusted judgment that happens yeah. sometimes on the interwebs. People like, the, the internet uh, <laughs> is an environment in which it, it very much uh, breeds an atmosphere for grabbing your pitchforks. It yeah. does. Well, yeah, it's going back to that. We like to make monsters. I think you were talking about yeah. earlier. Right. Woody Allen has always been notable for being a complicated uh public figure. And he's flawed. And it, well, it makes it easier to digest him if he's a douchebag. Yeah. Right. And so, again, I just want to say, shut up, you don't know. And don't act like you do. I say that's fair. The last thing I want to talk about is more of a trans-cultural thing that's got me fired up in sort of a negative way. Okay. Um, Twitter is a wonderful and beautiful thing, as we all know. And um, Yes. At least Dalton knows. And I have begun to follow, yes, comma, you're racist. On Twitter. That is a great Twitter feed that I had to stop following because it fired me up too much. It is so fantastic. It happens to be Black History Month this month. Oh. And And so, on the Twitterverse, there has um, been the... And what, 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 what Yes, Your Racist does is basically find racist tweets and retweet them for shaming purposes. Which is probably... <laughs> Not the most effective way. Well, but it's always people saying, I'm not racist, but, but here's a racist thought. And it's, no, 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 no. Yes, you are racist. racist. Yeah. And so typically they start with that, but there are other just things that said that are said, you know, the racist diatribes that came out against the Coke commercial, etc. happened. Black History Month is, is kind of the thing that's been going on a lot. And I'm really quite fired up about this because I'm troubled by this idea of white people. And I can't stand white people. No. I don't mind admitting it. White people who seem to suggest that in the name of fairness, there ought to be a white history month. It's the, called the other 11 months of the year. Exactly. All the rest of the time in history classes, what do you talk about? White people. All right? Enough said. Black History Month is about emphasis because there is a lack of emphasis. There is a lack of voicedness. There is a lack of presence of those bodies who were present but were not acknowledged because those bodies were black instead of white. And it's baloney and it's malarkey and it makes me so stinking angry. And the reason why I want to say what I'm saying right now is because I am not one to tweet those sorts of statements. And there are many who um, will not tweet their pro or con Black History Month statements. And I just want to say in the sake of charity and of discourse that it needs to be said white people you've already got your time anyway I don't mean to get too 
soapboxy or whatever, but we do, we do do this thing we do on the internet. Yeah, well, and it would be foolish to not address what's happening on the internet since we are, our platform is the interwebs. And so I'm quite fired up about this because I love the fact that there's a Black History Month where we actually take a point in our time to say we really want to think more about these great black men and women who are part of our country, who are part of the formation of our nation, and perhaps discuss the silence of so many voices that were formative that we'll never ever hear because of the hegemonic presence of of those others. And that's why I don't like white people. Moving on. I'm so glad, gentlemen, that we had this show today. And I'm so glad that we were able to discuss some things that matter. And we were able to do so via cinema, which is why we do what we do next week is Host Pick. Host Pick! And you need like a, like a theme song for okay. Host Pick? Like an intro? Okay. Okay. That's what we do. Okay. Well, Dustin, you are. it's come back to you. What, what say ye? What do we watch next week? Well, obviously keeping with the theme of anti-trash for this month, right? We're going to keep with the anti-trash, so... And, and we've also got a spin-off show that's coming up called The Good Trash Do Cinema. And so we're looking at some anti-trash in that, but those are going to be kind of film study style courses also. And so I was trying to think, what is very, very artsy? Mm-hmm. likely not to make its way into any film studies course, unless it's very, very specific, obviously, uh-huh. and yet also very, very recent. Okay. And I thought, well, I don't, I can't quite nail it for 2013, but I can nail 2012. Oh. Which doesn't feel that bad. Go ahead. And so, gentlemen, we're going to be looking at Barbarian Sound Studio. Okay. <laughs> Not what I thought you were going to say, but all right. <laughs> and because I don't think it, it belongs on good trash to cinema. But it's still pretty artsy. Oh, it's quite artsy. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, as long as it still fits with an anti-trash, I think we'll let it slide. And, and we'll, let, we'll let your uh, timestamp fudgery. I mean, it's a, it's a barely fudgery. It was released in a few very limited venues in 2012, and uh, it had a, it had a a British disc release in 2012. But really, in the states, we didn't see much of it until 2013. Okay. So I feel justified in that pick, and it is definitely a genre film. We have looked so far at a kung fu film. And we've looked at a documentary film, which plays with all the genres. Barbarian Sound Studio is a horror film. It is indebted to a particular genre of horror film from Italy called the Giallo or Yellow Film, based on these kind of pulp novels um, that all had yellow spines. And Giallo means yellow in uh, the Italian. And so, oh, I speak one of the most popular languages in the world. I don't bother to know what other things mean. <laughs> right. There's a Coke commercial you see. Um, I love that commercial. It's very good. Oh, it's great. And so we have uh, this opportunity now to look at this. It does some sort of thank yous to that. And also it's a little bit of David Lynch, which I kind of dig. So it's up in my wheelhouse. It's a movie I like. I'm going to go ahead and announce. I'm a little biased. But I'm very excited to see the response of my co-hosts because either they will love it or they will love how much they hate it. And either way, that will be a fun time to be had. Kind of like Only God Forgives. Kind of like that. And so it'll be anti-trash faux show. It also made the top film of the year in uh, Mark Kermode, the uh, famous British film critics, uh, films of the year for 2012. And so I think... That equals a fun time to be had. So we'll be looking at that next week. We hope we keep the conversation going. We hope you can talk with us a little bit via the interwebs by which we have our conversation. Where can we be followed and harassed on Twitter? I ask you first, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Uh, 
if you find yourself in the uh, desire to yell at me on the internet, you can find me at doll underscore stew. I probably won't respond because I ain't got time for that. Uh, if you want to know what I think about some movies, though, you can go to uh, Letterboxd. I believe I'm Dalton underscore Stewart on there. You can find me, Caleb Masters, at BigCalKenobi91. You can find me at RNDTBL Review. And finally, you can find me at Dustin underscore Cells um, on the Twitter, also at iProtein on the Tumblr. And we look forward to keeping the conversation going. Check out Barbarian Sound Studio, and we'll see you next time. I got me a badge, a bright shiny badge I'm painting the crest in yellow and blue I've got me a club, an exclusive club It doesn't include a place for you
Chop them all. 